All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for your patience with us as we venture out into a world with your word that seems to be accelerating away from your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for giving us this time. We know that it was from eternity past that you've ordained it, this message even, whatever special revelation uh, it might pose to us as individuals as well as a congregation. Father, we're so grateful for this time, and may we never become familiar with it. Thank you for returning to us. Uh, a couple of our members that have been away for a while with illnesses, uh, we're so grateful to see them. Father, we pray also for those still lost in this world, that we might be given the opportunity to evangelize them, to bring glory to you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us and to make a morning like this truly a celebration, something to behold by grace. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. And again, um, before we dig into this morning's message, I'd like to invite Pastor Kingsley Amenike up from, he's originally from Nigeria. Uh, he now lives in Canada with his wife and four daughters. God bless you, sir. <laughs> He's been following uh, North Christian Church pulpit now for about two years. And I just asked him, as I said before class, to come on up. Uh, come up here, sir. And just uh, introduce himself to the congregation right here, right in his pocket. Uh, and just um, just take about five minutes to introduce yourself to the congregation okay. and let them know what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. My name is Kingsley Emenike. I'm a Nigerian, but I'm not a Canadian citizen. And so I want to <laughs> I want to thank the church for giving me an opportunity to... I'm excited to be here today. And so I've been uh, listening to Pastor Ace's messages for the past two years now. And I've known him right from time. <laughs> I work with Evangelist Scott Grande, Christ Save Ministries, and I'm a missionary to Africa too. So uh, my job is to visit countries, countries, and then plant churches there too. And so I'm excited to be here today. <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> the Lord bless you. And so Pastor a, Pastor Ed is a great teacher, I, I can tell you. He's so nice, you know, his messages are clear, you know, and all that. And I appreciate that a lot. Thank you, sir. Yeah. It wasn't, I hope it wasn't too obvious that I paid him for that last part. <laughs> <laughs> it's always really encouraging to see uh, individuals out and about doing, ah, just doing what we've been learning as of late to go and spread the good news. Thank you, sir, for sharing your heart, uh, not just with us, but with the rest of the world. Okay, let's dig into our message now. Uh, good name is to be more desired than great wealth. We completed our last message in the series titled, There's Just Something About His Name, on Tuesday. 
Uh, and one of the final aspects we considered was making covenants in his name. We've been talking an awful lot about good names. Good names. Uh, there's just obviously something about our Lord's good name. Uh, that seems obvious. But what about our name? And that's going to be the topic of discussion this morning. What about our name? One of the final aspects, again, is making covenants in his name before we get to that topic. Go to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4. Jackie, Jenny, good to see you back there. Awesome. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4. <clears throat> when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Ecclesiastes 5.5 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Those are strong words. Uh, words of wisdom from Solomon, of course, up here on the board. God's name in a vow. The Bible does not want us to use God's name as part of a vow that we have no intention of keeping. A name invokes a sealing upon a vow by the strength of the name itself. It's untenable to break that seal, misappropriate it, or disrespect it, especially for personal gain. That's what we learn in that lovely passage, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. The Bible does not want us to use God's name as part of a vow that we have no intention of keeping and you know in American vernacular it's I swear to God right I swear I swear to God I, I swear in this person no no half the time it's almost done in, in, in jest right and that's um, not a good thing is what the spirits telling us first off this morning uh, moreover on a more practical notion up here on the board preserving God's name God's name is never to be used as a punchline to human emotions like I just expressed. And we definitely shouldn't use His good name to advance something ungodly like human plans for sanctification. Uh, and that uh, example of so-called self-help programs has come up time and again over the last month or so. Uh, we're not to borrow. I think of, again, I just think of someone trying to distract someone else so that they can put their hand in the cookie jar and grab you know, the goodies, but they don't actually want the person. They don't want a relationship with the person. They just kind of want some of the goodies that they perceive that person can give them. Um, we ought not treat um, the holy God of the universe with that kind of, or that level of disrespect. As mighty and magnificent as God's name is, He's not the only person uh, with a name, is He? And this is where we begin to transition now. Uh, as mighty and magnificent as God's name is, He's not the only person with a name. I mean, you have a name, right? As do I. And so that gives us pause. You have a name, I have a name. Well, what about our names? And this is, trust me, there's a reason why He puts idiots like me up here. 
It's because we've challenged this notion. We've lived through it. Not many noble, not many wise, right, that he puts behind pulpits. So I'm not judging. There is no condemnation whatsoever in my voice this morning. I'm just going to teach the truth. And this is the way God sees things. So please don't make the mistake of thinking I'm looking down or speaking down at you. We're going to be talking a lot about our own names this morning. Um, and by the way, I received a lot of good feedback from Thursday's message, which was our lead-in to this morning's message title. So if you want to really catch the first half of this series that uh, we seem to be currently on, titled A Good Name is to Be More Desired Than Great Wealth, then look at the tail end of uh, Thursday's message as well. Uh, in any case, I received a lot of good feedback from Thursday's message, and I'll just be transparent with you. Until Thursday morning, I had no idea whatsoever the direction the Spirit was going to take that message. I really didn't. Um, but suffice to say, it started with the following theme, a theme that carried throughout the message and will serve as our opening theme here this morning. Go to Proverbs 22, verse 1. Proverbs 22, verse 1. This is our theme. Uh, it was a theme that we began on Thursday, and it will be sort of the mainstay of our lesson this morning. Proverbs 22, verse 1 reads, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. There's the message title for you. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Up here on the board. A fool and a knave may have great riches, but a good name which supposes a man to be wise and honest redounds to the glory of God and gives a man a greater opportunity of doing good. And I think that was what really stuck out to me, which is why I borrowed that from the Benson commentary, that last phrase, gives a man a greater opportunity of doing good. I mean, let's face it, other than bringing glory to God in having a good name, other than being pleasing to God for having a good name, what about the practical side? What about what a good name buys you? Even with unbelievers, what does a good name buy you? Well, it buys you a seat at the table, as I like to say. And that's a very good thing, considering our commission, the great commission in our lives after salvation is to spread the good news about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if you have a terrible name, even with unbelievers, you're going uh, to frustrate your own ability to evangelize them, or at least give them the gospel. So a good name means something. And that doesn't mean, oh, here we go. You know, I'm a failure for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Get over yourself. This isn't about yesterday. Yesterday's gone last time I checked. We're talking about right now. Right now. What's the truth in your soul right now? Because that's what God's trying to implant. So let me give you another translation for the sake of amplification up here on the board. In the Amplified, Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name earned, we'll get to that as well, earned by honorable behavior, godly wisdom, moral courage, and personal integrity is more desirable than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. 
a good name earned by honorable behavior, godly wisdom, moral courage, and personal integrity is more desirable than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. That's the Amplified. Let me give you the New Living as well. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Again, choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. For example, when someone shakes your hand after signing a contract, let's say, are you fully intent on fulfilling said contract? Or do you have one of those, you know, you know, oh, 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 yeah, as long as it goes my way, is that you? Or do you fulfill contracts even when it doesn't go your way, say in a business transaction? Isn't a man after his word willing to stick by whatever he promised to do on a contract no matter what? Isn't that what being a man or woman after our word actually means? What is a contract after all? I'll give you a shiny example of what I'm talking about. Back in the fledgling days of eBay, uh, raise your hand if you don't know what eBay is, because then I can make fun of you like, I'm just kidding. But years ago, this is well over a decade, I'm going to say about 15 years ago, maybe, People never sold vehicles on the internet. They sold trinkets or, you know, old baseball gloves and, you know, paraphernalia and stuff like that. But vehicles, you know, tens of thousands of dollars maybe, vehicles, that wasn't uh, a thing back in the day. So this memory was at least 15 years ago, maybe more, if, if my memory serves me correctly. Anyways, I happened to be looking for a pickup truck at the time. And as much as it creeped me out, to even consider buying a vehicle. Back then on eBay, I saw this gorgeous Ford F-350. Now some of you Chevy guys are like, <laughs> this F-3 is a crew cab. Oh, it's gorgeous. I still remember what it looks like, mint condition. But it's in Texas. Long story short, the vehicle was worth like over $20,000 and I won the auction for 13. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Anyway, I don't even know if I had 13 grand. I'm like, but I won the auction. It's such a good deal. About 15 minutes after the auction closed, the owner, now this is a big dealership in Texas, and they had just started selling over the internet. But this is a well-established big dealership down in Texas, and I think it was Dallas, Houston area. It's one of those. About 15 minutes after the auction closed, the owner of the dealership called me to say that someone had screwed up and let the vehicle go by mistake for that low number. They have reserves, in other words, in auctions. His exact words were, and he had this thick, heavy, southern drawl, I'll tell you what, my friend, I've built my reputation down here on integrity, and I realize that we have a binding contract here. If you still want the truck for the winning bid, I will honor it. I said, booyah! I'm just kidding, I didn't. <laughs> Send it on up! Sucks to be you. Right? <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, thank you, but no thanks, honestly. 
I appreciate your honesty, and I'm not interested in seeing an honest man get stiffed because of a clerical error. I mean, come on. My point is that this man stood to lose over $7,000 because he was a man of his word. How many of us would have done as he did? Most people would have been on the phone with their lawyer or combing eBay's fine print for a loophole so they wouldn't have to fulfill that contract. Why? Money. No other reason. Money. You can try to slip out of it and money. And that's the shame. And that's the point of Proverbs 22.1. That is the whole point of it. What do you want? Do you want a good name? You want a real reputation or do you want riches? Because in this world, mm, let's quickly look at a list of folks whose reputation meant more to God, obviously, than how much wealth they had. And before we read this list, let me seed the discussion with a principle up here on the board. A truly good name is always a function of faith. For example, example, Hebrews 11, a truly good name is always a function of faith. Go to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. You can use the tab, sweetie. Hebrews 11, verse 1. The point on the board, a truly good name is always a function of faith. Hebrews 11, 1. We're going to read this entire chapter, something that the Spirit seems to see fit to do uh, more often than not nowadays. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Hebrews 11.5 By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Verse 6 And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is that he is, and, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the question again uh, on the table is, is a good name pleasing to God? Well, the principle is a truly good name is always a function of faith. And that's what we're starting to see here. That these individuals are all called out by name. And when we hear their name, we haven't met any of these people but we have a certain shared intimacy with them. Why? Because we're connected at faith. That's called the unity of the faith. You have a name, they have a name. We feel a connection to these people, even though we've never met them, because of the strength and the character of their name, as Holy Scripture divulges it. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the 
salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him, as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had, who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, uh, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, look at these names. These are real names, good names after all. And they're all preceded by the two words, by faith. Joseph, verse 22, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ great, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, 
Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepted, or not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval, approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. What do you see? You see the point on the board. That's the derivative of reading Hebrews 11 in its entirety in the context of this morning's message. A truly good name is always a function of faith. Are all the names we just read considered good names? Of course they are. How about yours? How about yours? That's the question on the table. We hear names like Moses and Abraham and what have you, Rahab even, and we have no hesitation of thanking God for their examples and entrusting even to one another that they have good names. Well, what about the person to your left and to your right? And when you go home today, what about the neighbor to the left and to the right? How about your name? Do you have a good name by faith? Or has arrogance against truth damaged your reputation? Let me give you some words I have to live by as a pastor. Go to 1 Timothy 3.7. 1 Timothy 3.7. We pastors have a calling on our lives. We are public by nature. I mean, look at, uh, it's Evangelist Kingsley, right? I'm sorry, I kept calling you pastor. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> Just look at, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. First Timothy 3.7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So if I think of Kingsley, who now lives in Canada, but lived in Nigeria, um, he's thousands of miles away, even now. And I really didn't pay him to say those nice things about me. I didn't. But I obviously have a good reputation with this fine gentleman, this man of God. And there's a reason why someone like that, who's earnestly seeking truth, is attracted to a ministry like this. And it starts with the guy at the helm, the man at the helm. It has to start there. I'm the leader here. 
Whether I like it or not, whether I like the responsibility always or not, that's not the point. I have to have a good reputation with those even outside the church. And that includes unbelievers, not just fine gentlemen like that, unbelievers even. So that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let me give you the amplified version up here on the board. 1 Timothy 3, verse 7 in the Amplified. And he must have a good reputation and be well thought of by those outside the church so that he will not be discredited and fall into the devil's trap. Um, Isn't it obvious why this must be true? I mean, we are trying to spread the gospel, right? I mean, we do represent Jesus Christ, the one with the perfect name, right? It's kind of difficult to do these things if our reputation reflects very little of Christ. So it's not rocket science. I know, you know, there are people out there that try to get kind of goofy with um, doctrines and, you know, pluck a verse here and pluck a verse there and pluck a verse over there and try to patchwork them together to say, you know, something about privacy this or privacy that or what have you. Um, But that's just an individual or individuals in arrogance trying to uh, skirt the responsibility of an office like this one or your responsibility. Too much is given, much is required. So says Holy Scripture, right? You have been given the greatest gift of all, the gospel. And you hold it in your hands. And that's a lot of responsibility. So this isn't rocket science, right? And if you're trying to give that to people and you're a complete buffoon, like always, it's hard. That's not hard to understand. So when people hear your name, even unbelievers, what might their response be? That's the question on the table. What might their response be? Let me give you two scenarios and you tell me which one is better. One person thinks of you by name and says to themselves, boy, I love that guy. He's so much fun at parties, especially when he's been drinking. Another person says, man, I can't stand that guy. He's always talking about Jesus, and he even refuses to hang out anymore. The first person loves you. The second person can't stand you anymore. Which is better, though? Shall we allow likability to be the foundation of our reputation? It says a good reputation. doesn't mean you're going to be likable. It says a good reputation up here on the board. Your reputation. The Bible says we ought to have a good name by Bible standards, not by world standards. By Bible standards. Doesn't mean you're supposed to go out there and make everybody like you. As far as it depends on you, you should be at peace with them. So says Holy Scripture. But you may not be the most likable person. If you're like me, you started here to start with and just downhill. You know what I mean? Scott White laughing. You know what I'm saying, right? The Bible says have a good reputation. 
not necessarily a likable one. But if you don't believe me, let's allow Holy Scripture to make that statement in your own soul. Go to Proverbs 16, 19. Proverbs 16, 19. Again, the Bible says we ought to have a good name by Bible standards, not by world standards. There's a difference, a big difference. Proverbs 16, 19. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the with the proud. That's Proverbs 16, 19. How about 1 Peter 3, 14? Go there. 1 Peter 3, 14. I'm just allowing Holy Scripture to make the point about your reputation on the board. 1 Peter 3, 14. But, even if you should suffer... For the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. So, I guess between the two scenarios I gave you, up here on the board, your reputation matters, as far as Holy Scripture is concerned. But it's a biblical perspective that matters. Up here on the board, it's better to have a reputation that renders you unlikable and pleasing to the Lord than to have one that renders you likable but displeasing to the Lord. For example, Proverbs 16, 19, 1 Peter 3, 14 to 17. It's better to have a reputation that renders you unlikable but pleasing to the Lord than to have one that renders you likable, but displeasing to the Lord. That's what Holy Scripture tells us. Some people, you know, literary, literary people usually, say things like, you know, your name is all you have in this world. You come into this world, and I believe the Bible says similar things, not so strong that way, but you know what I'm saying. Your name is all you have in this world. Protect it. And there's some truth in that, isn't there? The na- your name is really all you have because the rest of the stuff comes and goes. People leave your life. They come in. They leave. Sometimes you have money. Sometimes you're broke. Sometimes you win an awesome auction and you have to give it up 15 minutes later. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know what I mean? Sometimes you're high. Sometimes you're low. What's more, what, in all seriousness, what's more disingenuous, disheartening, even humiliating than having someone only think well of you because of your bank account. I don't even I don't even know how to think about that. Maybe because I'm not loaded. Nobody? 
But suppose I was like Bill Gates. I probably have a lot of friends. Certainly more than I have right here, right? I don't want friends like that. I don't want people to be attracted to the fact that I have money. That to me is grotesque. It's almost it's disheartening. And I think that's why rich people end up lonely. I'm not saying you can't be rich and not be lonely. I'm saying a lot of rich people end up lonely because who do you trust at that point? How do you even know? Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I wish God didn't make me so handsome. Because <laughs> I never know. You know what I mean? I try to go to Target, and it's like, I'm trying to get through the self-help aisle. I don't need your help. <laughs> These are the things I tell myself. I hit the button, help! But seriously, what's more disingenuous? Even... I mean, that's humiliating to me that someone would only think well of me because of my bank account, because I have, happen to have money. Sorry, man, it's, you're on the chopping block like Thursday this morning again. The vast majority of males I've ever met are enslaved to the idea of wealth. I mean enslaved, particularly being known by it. Their street credibility depends on it. That's the vast majority of males I know. Even believers are still, there's still very strong remnants of enslavement to wealth. Because that's what men do, you know what I'm saying? It literally takes about three minutes. Don't believe me? If you don't like golf, I'm sorry, but that's the example I'm going to give you. Sometimes you go to golf. I go golfing by myself sometimes, right, because no, I have no friends. So I show up, and they put me with, like, a other three guys, right, within minutes. What do you do for a living? Because we got to establish a pecking order here. You know what I'm saying? Let me look at the clubs in your bag. Oh, my God, those are, like, 20 years old. I'm serious. You guys think I'm kidding? Everything. Oh, let me see, oh, let me see that driver. <laughs> Mine's better. I win. I'm up here. You're down here. It's disgusting. It's like, can we just play a round of golf? Oh, that's right. We just did, and I kicked your re rear end with my 20-year-old blades. <laughs> Who's laughing now? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Most males I have ever met, including believers, are enslaved to wealth. It's how we're brought up, at least in America. And that's the trap the Bible speaks about. Let me put this differently up here on the board, finding a name. If a person doesn't love themselves, they will often find a surrogate name for themselves. Stop. Don't even read anymore, please. If a person doesn't love themselves enough, they're going to turn to some other surrogate name. I don't like my name. I don't like the way God made me. So I need to find another way to get the approval of three guys I don't even know in a golf cart. A person doesn't love themselves, they will often find a surrogate name for themselves. The end goal is to be thought of in terms of their wealth, not their person. It's a show of moral weakness and a fragile constitution. There are some guys right now, probably hearing my voice, I don't even know, they wouldn't even go to a, didn't even think about going to a a golf course, especially not a private one, with clubs that weren't at least two years or newer. 
because of the shame they would feel about having subpar, no pun intended, clubs. Do you follow what I'm getting at? There are some people just like that. I won't, I won't even show. Oh my God. Oh my, how do you even show up with those things? People have said that to me. How do you even play with those things? Let me see. They're, they're, there's some rust on them. I know. I kind of like it. I call it character. Do you know what I'm getting at, though? If a person doesn't love themselves, they're going to try to find a surrogate name. Some other way to build up their name, even if it's a counterfeit. I can't speak for unbelievers, but I can ask all of you a good question right now. What's wrong with the name God has given you? What's wrong with the name God has given you? Why wouldn't you love something Christ has proven He's loved already enough to save? I mean, He saved you by name. He knows who you are. He knew from eternity past. He knew on the cross. What's wrong with you then? Do you know something He doesn't know about yourself? Some deep, dark secret that renders you unlovable or something? That's silly talk. The truth is, the Lord wants each of His children to live up to their given name. From man's perspective, a good name is something that isn't necessarily known the first time someone meets you. A good name is earned. This is what we've been learning up here on the board on the topic of names. A person's name carries much more than a mere organization of letters or means of being called out of a crowd. A name transcends mere communicative processes. A good name is earned. Proverbs 22, verse 1. And if you have a horrible name, I'll say this again. I started class this way as a disclaimer. If you have a bad reputation right now, well, you know what? There's today. You may have to dig yourself out of a hole. So what? You may have to apologize to people. You may have to retract. You may have to pray an awful lot on how to do those things. So what? Start right now. That's, that's the beauty of God's grace and mercy, right? Are you, this is now. If Satan wants you to live in yesterday. Satan never wants you to get out of that box. Never wants you to get out of that. He wants you to be a POW for the rest of your life to your previous mistakes. And he also wants you to live in fear of possibly falling into them again. But tomorrow's not a reality either. The only thing we have is right now. Amen? Well, then, then that's what we focus on. One day at a time. You're in a good name one day at a time. Even if it just means you stop doing something that makes other people stumble. That's a start, right? I don't know. Pray on it. That's the whole point. But a good name is earned. As a backdrop to all of this, we journey back to the first book in the Bible where naming of creatures and even the first human beings commenced. There's something inherently pure in the book of Genesis up here on the board. The beauty of the first book. We'll get there in a moment. The benefit of the Genesis creation account is that context is minimized to creator and creation in their simplest forms, as opposed to, say, the book of Acts, where there were a multitude of contextual considerations. God kept it simple, in other words. And there's unavoidable truths in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, um, especially the first, you know, three, four chapters. 
What we've already seen is that God has given us the naming process and even our names. This is review from Thursday, so I'll go quickly here through this patch. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Therefore, regarding the naming process itself, anything given by God, including the naming process, is intrinsically good. In other words, God likes to give names. God likes to delegate the authority to give names to his, other, to his creatures. And since it's from God, there must be goodness in it, right? That's the whole point. As we're going to see, the sequence of naming God's creation was made before he chose, at least to reveal to us, to name the elements within it, including man. For example, the man in verse 8, Genesis 2, isn't called Adam until after the naming process commences in verse 20. While we can't run off and create doctrines that don't exist, we can at least concede that God made a point of keeping the naming process distinct from the creation process. As we've already noted, God delegated authority to giving names to Adam. As a result, Adam was intimated with God's creation. Just think of the process itself. It was good for Adam. God said so. It was good for Adam to take the helm in terms of naming. He said, whatever you name it, that's what it'll be. And that's one way of becoming very intimate. Right? If I say to you right now, this is going to be a horrible example, so don't laugh. Okay, this is, this is my uh, Burt's Beeswax, and this is my, if my projector fails, my button. I tell you, that's Jimmy and that's Kyle. Right? Now you know. That's Jimmy and that's Kyle. So if I say to you, hey, go get Jimmy off my pulpit, you're going to know. You're going to, hey, Jimmy. Right? And now we have a, don't you have, now you're more intimate. Now forever you're going to think of this as Jimmy, huh? It's not Uncle Jimmy because Uncle Jimmy takes the brunt of my abuse. But you see how quickly... We even laughed about it, because all of a sudden there was a name there. There was a bond. You know I call him Jimmy, now you call him Jenny, Jimmy, and now there's a bond. That's, that's what I mean. That's what the Bible teaches us, that God says, this is good that you're naming things. There's a certain in- intimacy up here on the board. The value of a name, God has placed a special intimacy in each of us reserved for knowing another person's name, as if bonding cannot be consummated in the absence of it. Go to Genesis 2, verse 7. We'll cover this stuff uh, relatively quickly. Genesis 2, verse 7. So God has placed a special intimacy in each of us reserved for knowing another person's name. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there He placed the man whom He had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump forward to verse 18. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And again, similarly, we see that the woman is created and referred to generically prior to being given a name. This is the pattern we've seen. 
Verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So God did that for Adam, for the first man. Up here on the board, God gave the man naming ability. So God enjoyed seeing his own creature. Uh, This is true because God loves everything he does because it's perfect. So God enjoyed seeing his own creature, the one made in his own image from Genesis 1.26, name those creatures subservient to himself. Name giving was a grace gift from God. James 1.17 says it's good up here on the board. God has given man the authority to name. Quote, and whenever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Genesis 2.19. Let's uh, continue on now. Verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, and this is the first mention of his name in the Bible, it was the man before, but now it's Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, and right now it's generic like the man was before, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so the first man was now responsible for calling out the first woman and naming her woman. Up here on the board, I gave you some of the original Hebrew, Ish and Isha. That was the first man's name and the first woman's name. The first man, Ish, named the first woman, Isha, woman, because she had a root in him. Notice that the authority to name was given to the man, not the woman. And that is the divine order of things. That's not Pastor Ed. That's non-negotiable. It's straightforward. That's the divine order of things. Man was called out. Man was made. Woman was taken from his rib and then asked to name the woman. And in all respect, he did what he felt was right. Authority orientation. Now this is where I'm going to slow down a little bit because this is where Thursday got really interesting. Because now God took us to a, a different place and he used the idea of relationship or marriage, I should say, specifically to speak about good names. Because as we know in America, families are imploding all around us. It's just bombshell after bombshell after bombshell. And again, there's no condemnation here. But as the family goes, so goes the country. Authority orientation. It's impossible to have a good name by God's standards if you buck his system of authority. Well, what does the world say about a God-given structure of a family nowadays. says it's bunk. says it's bunk. After our authority orientation to the Lord and the Word, arguably the greatest expression of it is in the family structure. I gave you a quote from J. Vernon McGee on Genesis 2.23. I want to read that again. Quote, he says, The woman is the other part of a man and is to answer to him. God intended man to take the lead. He created him first, and he created woman to follow. Does this mean a man's better than a woman? Nope, not at all. In many ways, if you actually do read your Bible, you know that a woman has um, qualities and abilities that men don't have. 
So this is about men and women being different and there being authority in the family. Created them first. He created woman to follow. The man is the aggressor. God made him that way, even physically. And woman is the responder. And I like what he says here. Remember, this is an old Southern preacher, a Southern Baptist preacher. He says, do not tell me that a wife has to love her husband. God does not say that. God says that she is to respond to him. If he says to her, I love you, then she is going to say right back to him, I love you. Why? Because she's a responder. It's a man's job to initiate even love. Remember, love's the fulfillment of the whole law. Even love. The man is the initiator. So says the Bible. When a man tells me, this is still McGee speaking, when a man tells me my wife is very cold, that is a dead giveaway that his is not, uh, that his is not really the kind of husband or he is not the kind of husband he should be. If he is the right kind of husband, she will respond because he is the one to take the lead. Again, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, jump forward to Genesis 3, verse 9. Genesis 3, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Oh, here we go. The woman. What's, the, what's his first response? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. This is Isha's obvious failure up here on the, on the board. Remember, he's the federal head of the family. God put him there and he's failing his family. There's only two of them. That's the family structure. Husband and wife. And he's failing her right there. Did she fail? Yeah, but that's not the point. Who does God go to? And then who does Ish, the man, deflect to? The first woman wasn't even named yet when the first man blamed her for his own failures. Are you surprised? Men still do it to this day. We're great at it. It's my wife's fault. I'm a jackass. No, it's not. You were like that even before. You were just a really good salesman, and you got that poor woman to marry you. We still do that stuff today. Something goes wrong in the family? Where's my wife? Why didn't you discipline the kids? Why is that kid getting in trouble at school? I thought you had that under control. You know, that's funny, because I thought you had the family under control. Ooh, touche. Who does God hold responsible for the family? The man. Ultimately, the husband. Remember, up here in the board, authority orientation. It's impossible to have a good name by God's standards if you buck his system of authority. Men, we have a command to love our wives. Women, respond, respect, submit even to, our, to your husbands. Those are the commands. That's what orients 
authority, the delegated authority from God in the family. And when that gets flip-flopped or even made sideways, all hell breaks loose. Consider the following up here on the board. Ish's failure pattern today. Husbands, if you don't give your wife something godly to respond to, remember she is the responder, you are leaving them open to the seductive influences of the kingdom of darkness. Women are created to respond. Again, if you're not doing your job, if you're not giving her, if you're not loving her, because again, I'm just using love because that's the umbrella term for everything that we're supposed to do in a family. If you're not loving her, she has nothing to respond to. She's going to ultimately resent you because you're not fulfilling your role. All right, how many, how many men and women in here have resented a boss for not doing their job? You don't have to, oh, so, me, right? Why? Because they didn't give you the guidance you wanted. This, a, a good boss is there to support you. A good boss's primary concern is to make sure you're successful in your job, whatever it means. What happens if they're just too busy, I don't know, playing cards on the internet instead of giving you direction? That's the worst, right? Well, it's the same thing. Now people start doing things on their own. And then what is a bad bot, that same bad, why'd you do it this way? Um, you didn't give me any direction. So I just took it on myself to stop. What's wrong? Shame on you. You're getting dinged now. You're only getting five out of 10 on your review. What? If you gave me some direction, same stuff happens in families. Why? Because authority is not doing its job. So husbands, do your jobs. Women are created to respond and they're beautiful. A responding woman, I don't know of anything that's more beautiful than a responding woman, to be honest with you. I'll go up to Pikes Peak right now in Colorado Springs and say, all right, that's really pretty. Been there, done that. But a responding woman? Mm -mm. I'll take that over the mountain. Especially given all the pressure there is on women not to respond, to buck authority that's given by God today. That's much more beautiful than Pike's Peak. You can disagree, but that's how I look at it, and that's what I see in the Bible. The family structure up here on the board, a wife's performance, for lack of a better term, in her marriage is fundamentally a function of her husband's performance. Well, what is that? What is the performance up here on the board? Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That's what McGee was talking about. Respond, in other words, to their initiation. Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ultimately, you're pleasing the Lord. Your primary concern, let's face it, isn't even your husband. It's the Lord. Ultimately, you're saying, Lord, you really want me to submit to this jackass? I do. Because when you do that, you bring glory to me. You prove that my grace is real. That you can despise that donkey. You can submit to him and stay afloat and not go crazy because you're in the word. Because my grace is sufficient. You can bring glory to me doing that. Or maybe you have an awesome husband and you just respond. That brings glory to me too. Either way. 
as is fitting in the Lord. So your eyes, ladies, if you ever want to survive marriage, and it's getting harder and harder, you have to keep your eyes on the Lord. You won't survive it. And if that's long past, if, you know, whatever, then whatever. It's today. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Love them. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command, right? That's a command. In the Bible, love your wives. But, you, but, but, shh. She's not the woman I married. Well, what do you expect? She's been waiting to respond to you. And you've let her down time and time and time again, and her hope is like this big now. Husbands, love your wives. Give her something to respond to. Give her something to respond to. That's all a woman wants, as far as the Bible is concerned. I want to be loved. Who the heck can, men and women, who here doesn't want to be loved? And don't get bitter against them. As is the case with every husband, Isha's good name depended upon his leading his wife. And Isha's good name depended upon her subjecting herself to her husband. All right, go back to, let's see, Genesis 3.12. Genesis 3.12, you still there? Okay, so the man uh, blames the woman. It's so bad. Like, he's literally the head of the household. And he's blaming the woman. Uh, did, what, she stuffed it in your face? She made, she forced you to eat it? Doesn't sound like it to me. Why are you blaming her? Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman, guess what? Being the responder, following the lead of the leader in the household, I'll blame the one below me in the food chain. I'll blame the serpent. That's what you did, right, honey? Yep. Blame the one below me. Okay, I'll blame the one below me. You see how it goes? Disappointing kids in a, in a home. Kid starts being a knucklehead. Dad says, eh. Mother's like, Whatever, then. You're not going to discipline them. I won't discipline them. Now the kid's running crazy, wild. What's the problem? Husband didn't do his job. It's the kid's fault that they're wild and out of control. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, demon children, because I've met a few. <laughs> I'm just saying that usually, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Husband blames wife, wife blames child. It's not my fault. The kid was just born, you know, a wildebeest. <laughs> you mean you have no responsibility in this whatsoever? You have no responsibility that your kid is a complete whatever? Nope. That's what I learned from the head of the household, so whatever. That's what we do in this, this house. Up here on the board. Ish's failure pattern today. Men are typically cowards. Sorry, guys. I know this is brutal, isn't it? It is. And the lady's like, yay. Men are typically cowards. I'm not saying all men are, and I'm not saying to the extreme extent. I'm saying we all have an element of cowardice in us that manifests 
and us not taking the lead sometimes when we need to the most. When the times, it's easy to be the leader, you know, it's easy to wear the uniform, but eventually you're in the trenches. When things get ugly in the family, that's when you got to step your game up, not run away and hide behind a beer bottle or make an excuse. You're going to go make some more new friends on the golf course. That's when you step your game up. But we're cowards often. Maybe even typically, arguably. A good name is destitute of cowardice, though. Jesus' good name is devoid of it. A coward fails to lead, leaving his wife little or nothing to respond to, giving the serpent opportunity to seduce her. If you're not going to lead me, I guess I'll just take the next best thing. I got any takers? Satan's like, you got it. Here we go. Line up the seducers. A good husband has a good name. The perfect husband has a perfect name. So let me ask you before we close, let me ask you men again a simple question. What does it mean to lead? What does it mean to lead? Well, I can tell you this. It implies someone subjected to you follows I mean, if there's a leader, the implication is someone's following. So if you lead by poor example, what do you expect from those following your charge? If you lead by example, what do you expect for those who watch you, who are following your example? If the leader says by his actions, it's okay to blame others for your mistakes, what do you think they will do? If that's what the leader says by their, his actions, it's okay to blame others for your mistakes, for your failures, what do you think they'll do? I guess it's okay to blame others for my failures. I guess I'll blame the kids. I failed them, but since I'm a coward, say this is the mom speaking now, and my husband's a coward, I guess I'll just blame the one below me, the kid. It's not my fault. It's my kid's fault. Uh, they're only one and a half. <laughs> Being silly at this point, but you get the point. On the flip side, if you lead well, especially in marriage, it's your name, your reputation that is made good. And men, that begins with your wife. Okay, let me say it again. If you lead well, especially in marriage, it's your name, your rep reputation that is made good, beginning with your wife. Go to Proverbs 31, 23. Proverbs 31, 23. Husbands, a good name begins with your wife. Why? Because she's built to respond to you. And if you're doing a job, she will respond beautifully. And she will magnify the truth of your home, your family. Proverbs 31, 23.
Her husband, this is the passage otherwise known as the virtuous woman. A good wife who can find, right? Isn't that verse 10? Greater than jewels, something like that. I don't have my Bible open, but something like that, right? Really hard to find. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So, up here on the board, a husband's good name. A virtuous wife is a sign of a good husband. Not always, but that's what the Bible gives us. The pattern. What is pleasing to the Lord. The way the Lord set it up. From way back in Genesis. Before the fall, when things were still ticking perfectly. That's the way God intended the family to be. And so this is what the Word is giving us here. Virtuous wife is a sign of a good husband. When things are clicking in the family, in other words, when a husband's doing his job and a woman is responding, doing her job, that's a good thing. This woman is a reflection of what she's being given because she's responding to what the man gives her to respond to. So you actually see that a virtuous wife is a sign of a good husband. A man's good name begins in the home with a wife that is given something godly to respond to. That's what Proverbs 31:23 is stating. And I guess we'll just have to end on the same note we ended with on Thursday for those husbands out there that say, you know, my wife is an intolerable witch. I'll tell you this. Imagine how Jesus feels about his bride. We're all part of the bride of Christ. And we are awful. We are worse than anything we could find and complain about in a marriage. So, you know, just saying, just throwing that out there. Here's my final thoughts on this. Let's be honest. We are imperfect husbands. Only Jesus has a perfect complaint against his bride. Why? Because he's a perfect husband. Unless you're a perfect husband, you don't have a perfect complaint. There's some reason, there's something, there's an admixture of variables going on in that house. You don't just get to say it's all her fault. Really, that's not what the Bible says. It's all her fault. The only person that's ever been able to say that is Jesus Christ himself because he's perfect and he's a perfect husband. He's the only one who has a perfect complaint then. Every time we complain as husbands, it's mixed, you see. Well, she's more wrong. 51% to 49 The rest of us ought to stop trying to do as Ish did back in the day, blaming our wives for our own failures. So, again, I'll end this way. Build a good name and bring glory to God, whether husband or wife, or even single, being the bride of Christ. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study your word here this morning, to break bread, the very bread of life. Sometimes it's not easy, Father, but we accept the calling on our lives by name. We accept that your grace is sufficient to support us in whatever you ask us to do, whether popular or not, by today's social standards. Father, what a blessing this has been this morning. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.